You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to the show. Today, we're going to be talking about how atmospheric changes affect plant growth. Danny Way is an associate professor at the Department of Biology here at Western, and her lab looks at how different plants will react to possible future climate realities here on Earth. She came on to the podcast to talk about what some of those futures may look like, the kind of decisions we have to make based on those trajectories, and some of the work she's doing in Canadian forests. Here we go. Primarily, your lab studies the way in which plants respond to climate change. Apart from temperature, what other aspects of the climate affect plant growth? So you have changes in CO2 concentration impact plant growth. And I would say the biggest thing outside of that in temperature uh, would be light and water availability. So if we don't expect light to be changing under a climate change type scenario. So there's not big shifts that we're expecting in like cloud cover or anything like that. But we do expect big potential shifts in the amount of precipitation and water available for plants. So in some regions, like in the Southwest in the United States, for example, where almost all of the climate models are projecting massive drying. So not only will the temperature be hotter, which means that it's inherently sort of drier. The, the relative humidity is, is going to go down as the temperature goes up. But on top of that, you're just going to get less precipitation in the first place. And that means that you're going to have increasing drought stress. So that's, that's a really big concern. It's less of a concern in many of the places in, in Canada where instead we're expecting similar or even increased precipitation uh, under future climate scenarios. And is that one that directly relates to global warming? Do you mean does the precipitation? Yeah. Yeah, so basically being able to model how precipitation is going to change in the future is is one of the more complex and difficult parts of predicting future climates. And part of that comes down to just difficulties in, for example, being able to model cloud formation um, and other types of, of shifts in the atmosphere. So there's a lot more uncertainty about where precipitation is going to change than there is about, for example, the, the fact that temperatures are going to increase. So some areas, like I said, that like in the southwestern United States, every model predicts it's going to get drier. And so there's really good agreement and there's a lot of consensus about that. But in other regions, there's there's less consensus. And so there's a lot more uncertainty about, about how water availability is going to shift. Do you have any projections for southern Ontario? I'm less familiar with the exact projections for southern Ontario okay. on that. I mean, for temperatures, if if we don't change what we're doing and if we just continue on the, the socioeconomic trajectories we're on, then you're looking at globally an increase of three to four degrees Celsius in the next 80 years, which yeah. is huge, okay. right? So I mentioned there used to be you know a kilometer of ice on top of us, and that was only you know two or three degrees cooler global temperatures. I mean, so these are these sound like relatively small changes in the sense that a day that's 21 and a day that's 24 don't feel that different in temperature, but when you scale it up to the global level, it's they're huge. And so in, in southern Ontario, we're looking at the potential for increased temperatures of, of, you know, five or six degrees Celsius by the end of the century. And where do you guys conduct your research? 
So a lot of the research for our lab is done at the Biotron here at Western, which is the Centre for Experimental Climate Change Research. So it's, um, it's an entire building. In fact, it's spread across more than one building, and, and we also have collaborators at the University of Guelph. Uh, and if you actually go out back behind the biology and chemistry buildings, if you're on campus and you take a look up, you'll see a suite of rooftop glass houses that you can, you can see from the sidewalk and the road, which is where the Biotron is located. So we've got really phenomenal facilities where we can actually mimic what future climates would look like from a plant's perspective. Right. And how many different versions of the future do you guys try to kind of paint a picture of in that space? Yeah, so we have six of these glass houses that you can see uh, if you look up at the building. And what we're doing right now is we're getting two different CO2 concentrations. So we have current CO2 of 410 and a future CO2 for the end of the century of around 750 parts per million. That's sort of a moderate projection of what CO2 might be like by the year 2100. And then what we're doing is each of those are combined with a different growing temperature across the season. So we take current London temperatures for the last five years and that's sort of our control setting. And then we also have that with a four degree warming and then an eight degree warming, which is sort of more like a worst case scenario if we don't change our behavior. All right, so you guys are looking at the end of this century as kind of your baseline. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, I always see projections for 2040, 2050, and those are even pessimistic. But even that far in advance, how dire do things look? Well, I, th- I think it's not so much that things are dire as that we're really at a crossroads where we can choose what right. we're going to do. And it, it's therefore gratifying to start seeing an upswelling of interest in this topic, especially from younger people who are really the ones who are going to have to live with that climate and that change. Um, even by just the year 2040, 2050, uh, for example, you know, we're probably expecting another one to two degrees Celsius of warming, probably closer to two degrees where we are here. Um, and that's partly just because climate warming's not distributed equitably across the globe. It's not equally dispersed. And so when we talk about sort of an average three degree warming, that means that around the equator and in the tropics, they're barely going to get any warming, maybe one to two degrees. But up in the high Arctic in Canada, for example, you're looking at, at the potential for 10 to even 12 degrees Celsius warming. So it's there's this sort of gradient of, of heating that occurs. And so since we're at a higher latitude, um, we do get above average warming under under these predictions mm. I guess I guess I looked at it the wrong way somewhere like 2040 is only 20 years advance the reports I see say stuff like irreversible but I guess when you go that far in the future there is you know other options well I think again part of it means what do we decide to do now once there are certain things that are built into the climate system that are what we would call tipping points. And so the point is you can you can push the system up until that and still come back from it. But once you go over that, you basically tip into a new a new completely different scenario. So it's sort of the idea of, you know, taking a marble in a bowl and you can push it up towards the lip of the bowl over and over again. It'll keep coming back down to the center if you let it return. But once you flip it out of the bowl, it's in a completely new world. Mm. And that's the idea of this sort of tipping point is once you 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 have this sort of range of tolerances in the climate system that you can push it and it and it will return to something that we recognize as normal but once you reach this this threshold if you get over it then we're much more up in the air about what things are going to look like and whether we could get back to where we something that we recognize as now 
Right, that's a really good uh, metaphor. How would it affect the ecosystems and general environment in settings such as forests if we were to see a decline in the abundance of plants? So I think it's unlikely that overall we'll see strong declines in, for example, just plant cover under future climate scenarios. We will see areas where we get things like strong droughts and and fires that are going to increase with increasing temperature. But at the same time, what you're mostly going to see is a switch between different species which do well under some climates or in some areas compared to what's growing there now. So for example, areas that are currently boreal forest might turn into temperate forest or even grasslands if it gets dry because trees need more water than grasses. Um, And those sort of structural changes have big implications for things like the animals that live there, but also as humans for economic, you know, there's big economic impacts from that. So if you're a forest, uh, you know, a forestry company, you really care that that forest isn't going to be there. And if you're growing crops in an area, then the fact that you can't grow them there in the future, those are those are going to be big changes. Yeah, it's especially relevant this week. I saw that koalas now are functionally extinct because their forests burnt down. Yeah, I read a little bit about that, and I'm not an, ex- um, an expert on, on koalas per se, but I do know there's a lot of concern for species that require very specific habitats or other species, right? So if you're completely reliant on one species of eucalyptus, then clearly if that species is, is, is at risk, then, then so are you no matter what else we do. Yeah. So, yeah. You've mentioned the grass needs less water than trees. Are there other certain plants that are able to thrive more um, in changing conditions? So I'm, I'm sure everyone's going to be pleased to hear this, but in general, weeds do well. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's one, that's one thing that, that we think about with the future climate is a lot of the time it's the species that are a little bit more iconic and special and long-lived that, that are actually more at risk. You know, so from the animal perspective, of course, it's things like polar bears and, and such that, that, that we care about and that are more um, um, either cuddly or charismatic. I guess charismatic is the term we usually use for that. There are fewer charismatic plants than there are charismatic animals. I mean, everyone likes tigers and rhinos and, and gorillas, right? But I think one of the things you do see is that it's these species that are able to grow in a wide variety of habitats and that tolerate human disturbance really well. Those are the ones that are going to be the winners. So more dandelions, you know, and and fewer, uh, you know, eucalyptus trees perhaps when it comes to certain species. Mm. Um, and you guys don't only just kind of manufacture these projections within campus here. You do some work in Canadian forests. Can you touch on what you guys are doing out there? So a lot of the work, so we're doing work in glass houses here where we're working with seedlings. But part of the problem with that is that a small seedling growing in a pot is clearly not a real tree and it's not a real forest. And so the question about whether or not you can take information from that type of experiment and really translated into what you expect in a forest is is you know something that a lot of people are suspicious about. So one of the ways we do get around that is is working at experiments and sites where you actually do have forests with those same trees. And so one of the experiments we're working in is actually in the United States. It's in uh, southern boreal forest there in Minnesota where they have very large what we call open top chambers. So it's basically like building uh, see-through plastic walls around uh, circular plots in the field. And in each of those plots, in each of those chambers, 
they're exposing the trees that are already growing there to a combination of different CO2 and growth temperatures that are also mimicking future conditions. Right. And so I guess you're more hypothesizing within these glass houses and then kind of confirming out in the field. Y- yes. Oh, go ahead. kind of answers my follow-up, but I was just wondering, are you planting a seed out in the real world and having a pretty good idea of what its life is going to look like? Well, I think what we're trying to do is is plant seeds under a range of different future climates and then try to follow how that climate impacts the plant that develops from that seed. Right? So as you say, we can do that in the glass houses, and the upside of that is we have a lot of control over the conditions that the plant's growing under. And we can also grow a lot of plants, and therefore we can harvest them. And I don't feel so bad about killing a few hundred seedlings in the name of science. On the other hand, I feel pretty bad cutting down a whole bunch of trees right. that, are, that are actually growing out there. Uh, and so as you say, what we're then doing is is partly validating whether or not the, the trees that are growing at this large experiment in the States, um, and the experiment's called spruce, uh, whether that the trees in that experiment show us similar results to what we get with the seedlings. Because if it does, then yes, it means, it gives us more confidence to be able to say, hey, you know, these experiments in, in glass houses can tell us something about how a real forest is going to respond to an increase in CO2 and a strong increase in growth temperature. Mm. Are we at the point where there might be a species of tree that over six different projections, it just doesn't look super optimistic for it, where we go, look, we just have to ditch this version of this tree's or so-and-so tree? Right. So a lot of the research I've done over time has been comparing different plant species and, and how they respond to these future temperatures and CO2s. And what I've definitely seen coming up again and again is that spruce trees are really sensitive to warming. And so we've seen that in our studies on a couple of different species. We see that uh, to some extent in the the field at the spruce experiment. And there are a lot of papers from other people, including people working on, for example, Chinese species, that basically if it's a spruce species and you grow it at a warmer temperature, they're almost always smaller. They're more stressed. Um, And so it almost seems like there's something very particular about that group of trees that makes them vulnerable to warming. Uh, and that's the problem from a Canadian perspective or even a global perspective is that you know, black spruce and white spruce are two of the most common species in, in Canada. <laughs> right? So they dominate most of our boreal forest uh, and you find them across large parts of our, our land mass. And so if those species start having reduced growth rates or are very stressed by the increase in temperatures that we're going to have over the next few decades, then you're going to expect to see big changes in that whole ecosystem. I think the one thing I, I'd want to say is that when we talked about CO2, you know, I mentioned that there are these benefits to CO2. And also, if you talk to people who are climate change deniers, this is one of the points they bring up. They'll say carbon dioxide is food for plants, it's a fertilizer for plants, and so more carbon dioxide is, is good. It increases their, their growth rate, it, in, it reduces the amount of drought stress that they're going to they're gonna experience, and so more CO2 is a good thing. And I just want to say that parts of that are definitely true. More CO2 does mean more carbohydrates, it does mean more sugars for the plants, it often can increase growth rates over, over certain periods of time, and it does often mean that plants use less water. But it doesn't always mean that. It also has a number of other negative impacts on things that we particularly care about that plants do. So one of those is the fact that 
plants that grow at higher CO2 when it comes to things like crops and agriculture, um, the material produced under high CO2 is less nutritious. Um, and that's something that is particularly problematic when we're talking about major crops that Canada grows, like wheat, for example. And so if, you're, if you have faster growing plants, but they're producing worse quality, more low quality grain, then that's actually a problem. The other thing is that there's a number of experiments that are actually exposing plants to high CO2 out in the field. And what they find is that, yes, the plants can grow faster, and yes, each individual leaf loses less water. So those little pores on the leaf surface close, and the plants lose less water. But the plants make more leaves. And so if you grow them at high CO2, they have bigger canopies, and they produce more leaves. And what that means is that at the plant level, the plants use just as much water. <laughs> so there's sort of a lot of these understandings that based off of what's happening at an individual leaf, plants will be more tolerant to drought under high CO2 future climates. But a lot of the data is starting to point to the fact that that's not necessarily true. Mm. That marks the end of this episode of Western Science Speaks. If you enjoyed it, check us out on SoundCloud, Spotify, or Podbean for more episodes. For the meantime, I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.